0: In the waning stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, a public health crisis that relied on and anointed frontline and essential workers as heroes, those workers are leading a revolution in the workplace. The Great Resignation, Striketober, and a remarkable wave of labor unionization is bringing workers' rights into the limelight again. Economics professor Richard Wolff calls this the democratization of the workplace process led by and for workers that Wolf believes can create and spread class consciousness and effectively lead to a fortified grassroots socialist uprising. He's a professor emeritus in the UMass Econ department, which was once lauded by the Washington Post as the single most important heterodox economics department in the country. We're here to explore what happened to leftist sentiment on campus and to look at UMass's radical past, not as a formula, but as a foundation for a radical future. You're listening to Legacies of Leftism, Episode 1, Professor Wolf and Praxis in the Workplace.
1: I was born in a place called Youngstown, Ohio, in the middle of a of an area at the time that was a thriving steel producing part of the United States. A lot of the steel that went into the automobiles made in Detroit uh, came from uh, Youngstown uh, where the steel was made. My father worked in a steel factory, Um, but my parents were also immigrants. My father was French and my mother was German. Uh, I'm the first member of my family to be born in the United States. Uh, I grew up speaking French and German. Uh, English was my third language, Um, even though I've done all my work in English, and I've lived here all my my whole life. My parents were very big on education, and so I went to very fancy schools. I went to Harvard and then I went to Stanford and I finished at Yale. So I'm kind of a poster boy for elite education. Ten years in the Ivy League was more than enough. I didn't want to ever go back there. I wanted to teach in a public institution. Um, And so when UMass offered me a job, I jumped at it. And I've never regretted it. I spent 35 years... Uh, teaching at UMass in Amherst um, and I've written a bunch of books and I found one of the best friends I've ever had in my life was a professor in the economics department with me at UMass, a guy named Steven Resnick. Um, so my experience there was everything I hoped it would be. I was lucky, purely by coincidence, that the year in which I stopped teaching at UMass, which was 2008, was the same year that American capitalism as a system really began what is now accelerating as a long-term decline. And suddenly, all over the America, people were getting nervous and anxious about their job future, about their income, about just the whole way the country was going. And so I discovered that I could become a teacher on a much bigger stage. So l- let me take it step by step. First, how did I come to it? I grew up most of my childhood in a suburb of New York City, a town named New Rochelle. Maybe some of the people uh, listening to this program or watching uh, know where that is. It's part of the county, it's called Westchester County. So it's a suburb of the city of New York. And in order, my father worked in the city and then commuted on the train in and out. And I would look forward to when he would take me. The city was a very exciting place. The suburb was was not. (laughs) So going with him to the big city was exciting. And you sat on a train, about a half an hour to get in, And this train went right through a neighborhood called Harlem. And in Harlem, everybody's skin was black. Whereas where I lived in New Rochelle, in my neighborhood, there were no black people at all. It was your typical American segregated uh, neighborhood structure. And the train is elevated there. So you're, you're like... Imagine like th- third or fourth floor high is, and where the train tracks are are literally like 20 feet from the building. So at, when the train would go slowly or stop, you had a bird's eye view right into the apartment of the people living there. And it was crystal clear that these were people that didn't have much money. The furniture was kind of shabby. The laundry was hanging outside on a string, stuff like that. And I'm a little kid. I don't understand anything. I asked my father. And my father looked at me. And then we had this conversation many times. And he said to me, in this country, remember, he's an immigrant. He said, in this country, they don't treat black people very well. They make them have bad jobs. They give them low income. And they they crowd them into these places that we're looking at. And I think right there, the way he said it, he was telling me something he felt strongly about, something he was clearly critical. He was. He felt this was a, a grotesque injustice. I picked all that up. By the time I got to high school, I started asking questions. And I very quickly noticed two things. Number one... That my questions frightened my teachers. And the second thing I noticed was that they couldn't answer the question. And this, I know, intrigued me. A little bit like, you know, the kid who's told, don't ever go and take a cookie out of that jar. Well, that cookie became 10 times more attractive. And then when I went to Harvard, you know, now I'm a college kid, I had learned to be a bit more sophisticated by still answering asking the same questions and there I saw even worse fear because remember I'm going to school at the height of the cold war and anything that looked or smelled to be critical of America and capitalism was so scary to people. I pretty well in in, already in college I figured out that the problem wasn't this or that, it wasn't this law or that pattern or this particular, it was a system. It was, the whole system was set up to work in a particular way. I didn't even have the words. Now I will call it capitalism. I'll give you an example. When I was writing my doctoral dissertation at Yale University, where I got my PhD, I studied colonialism. I studied in this case uh, what the British did in East Africa. I actually learned Swahili and I spent time in East Africa to do the research for this thing, which was the first, also the first book I ever published, came out of this research. Um, And I'm sitting in front of the three professors who are examining me to determine whether I get the PhD or not. And they decided that I was a good student. I always was. And so they gave me the degree, but they would not accept the title because my title was the economics of colonialism. And they looked at me and they said, colonialism is a value laden word. It isn't an, it isn't a." Uh, an acceptable scholarly objective something or other. So if you actually go to the library, you you get my dissertation, it will read the economics of British foreign policy, because those words were acceptable. The very word colonialism they did not accept. So. I was lucky. I could go to the library. I discovered that there were people who analyzed how the system works. I discovered that they called themselves Marxist, Socialist. I had to learn all of that. Um, But that there is a rich 150-year-old literature to which all kinds of brilliant minds have contributed their research there. And I, I couldn't I I gobbled it up. I, for me, this was the education I should have been getting in the classroom. I wasn't, but I had it in the library and I just moved in practically to the library so that I could uh, absorb it all. I did learn, of course, along the way, that this was scary to people. Um, But you know, I am who I am. And I said, okay, um, I'm staying with the radical stuff. But here's the irony, and this is important for you and your generation to know. I thought it would make my life much harder, much more difficult to get a good job and all of that. I got tenure at age 27. That's very unusual. I have had one good job after another, the longest at UMass Amherst, but I teach now at the New School University in New York City, where I'm a visiting professor and can do exactly whatever I all I want. Uh, I expected to suffer for being a critic of capitalism, but I never did. I count myself lucky that my radicalism has been an easy ride. A good number of my jobs, not only did I get them, but a good number of jobs I got were because I was a radical. Even back then, the job at UMass, the deans at UMass were looking to hire radicals. I was looked at by them because I was a radical. Not in spite of, not at all. That's what they wanted. And that's why they hired a whole group of us. We were five. Very rare in in any university setting. It's a very individualist place. I was living in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a hundred miles away. So I would drive up to Amherst to meet with these deans. And uh, you know, an hour before we would meet the five of us together because we knew each other uh, and we would kind of strategize, what are we gonna say and what's really going, what do they want exactly and all the rest. And So we were a little bit, you might find this funny, we were a little bit cavalier because we couldn't quite believe this was happening. We all said, okay, Uh, at least we're going to get together, you know, we'll have a glass of wine, we'll catch up on each other's, you know, personal lives and stuff. But so let's, let's tell them, you know, we're not coming up here to teach. Uh, For me, I'm a city boy, by the way, going to a place like Amherst frightened me. You know, it's too quiet at night, you know, I'm I'm not going anywhere near this. So we all played like a game. We wrote down what it is that we would have to get from the university to even consider moving up there and taking a job. So I was, as I say, I was 27 years old. I demanded tenure. I demanded, you know, X thousand dollars more than I was getting where I was teaching at the City University of New York at that time. Uh, And each of us put down kind of you know, our fantasy of what we would like. <laughs> and that's when we knew we were in a weird situation because we sat down with the deans, we handed them this list, and they basically looked at us and said, okay. And we realized, oh boy, do they want this? Because there was no um there was no real I mean they 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 they, they made they went through the motions but it was very clear that and that's why we went. We all went there because how could you? It, at the time of the Cold War, at the time when saying the word Marx made half the people leave the room, they got so frightened. Uh, in that time, to have people want us was a new experience. Now they were very New Englandy. They were very—I don't mean to offend you—very Massachusettsy. In other words, they basically they told us, almost in these words, we want to hire five of you, but they have to be pedigrees. You guys all have to be Harvard or Yale or something like that. Otherwise, this is not going to fly. But they wanted to have leftists, radicals. They thought that was sexy or whatever. I don't know what word to use, but that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted.
2: Right. Um, Some kind of like redeemable quality. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, in the here and now, we're kind of looking at a wave of unionization and general strikes and the new kind of labor movement revving up. Um, So in a sense, maybe we're not there yet, but we're kind of in the, we had an ebb and now we're flowing. You know, over the years, I read that over the years that you taught at UMass, one of the political and ideological, ideological trends post-Cold War, like you mentioned, um, was this impression that, uh, you know, the Soviet Union had been thoroughly vanquished, that capitalism had displaced Marxism, um, that it had prevailed. And you said that uh, there was an impression that uh, Marxism had gone into hiding or that socialism had gone into hibernation. Can you describe the years after you were hired, after you got tenure, the 35 years you were at UMass? um, What were some of the trends that you observed kind of in how people received, reacted to a professor at UMass espousing, uh, you know, Marxism?
1: First of all, there was never any problem ever from the students. In other words, um, my classrooms were always full, um, graduate and undergraduate. Once the reputation of UMass Graduate Economics became known in the country, we had way more students wanting to come than we could possibly accept. But the only problems we ever had were with other faculty, other faculty who were anti-leftists that's who they were, um, or scared. Um, academia is a place of pretty big jealousies. And some of that is, is, is the way the system is set up. I used to say to my students, and I'll say it to you now, uh, that in my judgment graduate education is a kind of hazing ritual. Graduate school is a test of your self-esteem. It breaks you down. And if you don't have reserves of self-confidence, you can be really psychologically damaged by the experience. But UMass created an environment where we, we learned from our students. We taught classes in which the students presented material or asked questions or disagreed in ways that provoked us in the best possible way. So absolutely, um, it was a very, it was a great place to be.
2: And you said just a couple moments ago, you know, leftist, whatever that means, it is such, yeah. it's such a vague term. Um, and I kind of, I, I wrote down monolith because I think it, I just, I loathe the term monolith. I think it's so overused, uh, but for a lack of a better phrase, you know, leftists are not a monolith you know, the term leftist encompasses so much. um, And it's often construed uh, to mean and represent something that it doesn't even. uh, Right.
1: Absolutely. It doesn't. Um, But you know, but here in the United States, let me say to you, it is that problem is worse than almost anywhere on earth.
2: Yeah. Um, my, my parents are uh, Brazilian immigrants and you know, they kind of came up, they they grew up in a Brazil that was being democratized. Um, right. And you look at countries like Portugal, where the three major parties are left leaning, it's the, you right. know, it, the country is governed by a socialist, a communist, and a democratic socialist party. Um, so right. it's a completely different reality from what we're experiencing. Um, and like you said, even when it's analyzed in like good faith, uh, socialism, communism, and even collectivism more broadly, uh, they're all very diverse traditions. So I wanted to ask you, uh, where do you align yourself now and kind of what is the quote unquote brand of, of socialism that you espouse?
1: I'm a student of the literature of the left, socialist, communist, all of that. I've tried in my life to read as much of it as I could get my hands on as much as I had time. Uh, So I have an intellectual debt to the whole range of leftist thinking. In Scandinavia, socialism means you leave all the industry and all the stores in private hands. Private enterprise, markets, you leave all that there. All that socialism means is that the government comes in and highly taxes and highly regulates that kind of economic system in order to provide a vast array of services to people that they get because they're citizens. Then you have the other extreme, if you like, the Soviet Union, where the government comes in and doesn't just regulate, it takes over the enterprise. It runs it as a state enterprise. That's also called socialism. And then there's the People's Republic of China, which is a hybrid. They have roughly half the economy in private hands, half of it in government enterprises, with a big powerful government sitting on top regulating. Those are three different versions. For me, all of the experiments were great for what they achieved, but they taught us as much what, they, what you shouldn't do as what you should do. And for me, the biggest one, and you you know that if you look at my work, is that everything was done at the macro level. Private versus public enterprises, markets versus planning, stuff like that. In my judgment, you didn't deal with, not in Russia, not in Scandinavia, and not in China, you didn't deal with the micro level the relationship inside the factory, inside the office, inside the store, whatever it is, what are the relationships among people in their daily work life? If that isn't socialized, if that isn't distinctively socialist, you haven't made the transition that I understand socialism to represent. And that's why I advocate for worker co-ops, because the worker co-op is the end of the hierarchy inside the enterprise, which I think crippled and limited what the Soviets could achieve, what the Scandinavians could achieve, what Xi Jinping is trying to achieve, and so on.
2: Right. Uh, In one of the lectures, one of your lectures that I watched, you say that socialism was not born viable. Um, And I think that captures what you were talking about. Um, And, you know, you also said that like worker cooperatives aren't an idiosyncratic odd of previous centuries. And at UMass, we have seven. uh, We have seven student-run cooperatives, uh, People's Market, Earth Foods, Sylvan snack bar. I'm, you know, I was lucky enough to work at one of these my freshman year, and it was personally transformative. But it was not like this kind of revolutionary thing. And I think a lot of the criticism around, uh, you know, democracy in the workplace as the antidote to capitalism uh, echoes that same concern. What is like, what is the selling point on democracy at the workplace as the remedy to you know, the the failures of these uh, socialist experiments that, uh, had so much potential, but have kind of become the, the butt of America's jokes. You know, you look at, oh, look at Venezuela. Look wow. at, uh, like, do you really want to stand in a breadline? I think socialists have grappled with the pitfalls of incrementalism for a long time, but what, what about democracy in the workplace captivates you so much?
1: What about the, the workers' co-op? Here's the basic set of points. How in the world are you going to run a a quote-unquote democratic society in which human beings stand up and say, one person, one vote, we make the big decisions of this community democratically, not by a small group that arrogates to itself all the power and the rest of us sit there? How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to tell you how you're not going to do it. You're never going to get people to be democratic in their political life if their economic life is rigidly undemocratic. When you go to work in a capitalist economy, when you cross the threshold into your store or your office or your factory, you are entering a place where all democracy is absent. It's like it's been sucked out by a vacuum cleaner. The employer, who is who, the board of directors of a corporation, is a dozen people. The family that owns the business, the partners that own the business, bi- is a tiny minority of all the people who work in this business. But the tiny minority designs and does what? It tells you, this is the work you're going to do. There you're going to sit. With that piece of equipment, you're going to work. In this way, you're going to work. And when you're done at the end, When you've poured your brains, your body, your mind into producing whatever it is they sell, they own it, you get out of there and go home, have your beer, have your pizza, and come back tomorrow morning and do it all again. There is no democracy. The people who run that enterprise have no accountability to you at all. They're in the business of making a profit. There's no democracy. And that's what you teach people five out of every seven days, the best hours of the day. You're drumming into their heads. You don't count. We run the show. You do what you're told. You're a, you're a drone. You're a cog. So you, if, if you have any genuine pretense, if you have any claim to being a Democrat with a small d, you have to be in favor Of a transition out of the top-down hierarchical capitalist organization of work and in substituting a democratic. If you're a Democrat with a small d, you should have demanded a democratic workplace at the beginning. It's never been demanded. How convenient for the people who own and operate enterprises that we've never demanded a democratic workplace, and how awful for everybody else.
0: You're listening to WMUA News.